faith and scholarship and critical thinking are not sort of at, uh, at odds with one another. At times there are like uncomfortable tensions there, but there are also ways that a faith bias, if you want to call it that, can help you see things that others can't see. Um, and I think we're at a time in scholarship where hopefully that's being recognized more and more that like that's why we value different perspectives in scholarship and like overtly bringing those perspectives to the table is because we see that like coming at scripture from the vantage point of x y or z is is insightful and it's not just a distorting lens um so i think it's it's the productive bias of faith that I'm, i'm interested in Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages and stages, bienvenue chez Le Podcast de Jolly Thoughts, episode 5252. Uh, today, we have a conversation with uh, Dr. Matt Lynch. Matt is a professor at Regent College over in uh, the, the other coast and is also uh, not just an uh, avid scholar who's put out a lot of great content, uh, but a uh, in, in the academic world, but also in the pseudo-academic world. Uh, he has been spending a lot of time uh, for years now putting out content via podcasting. Uh, and so that's actually where I first heard his voice. He's one of the uh, kind of co-founders and still primary voices behind the OnScript podcast, as well as its offshoot, uh, the Biblical World podcast. And uh, yeah, and also is just doing you know a lot of his own work on the side. So the guy's, he's bottom line is he's pretty prolific. Uh, and so the reason that we're having a conversation today uh, is not just because he's a great guy, but because he wrote a book called Flood and Fury, which we're going to get into here as the primary uh, thing that we talk about in, in the conversation, although it's pretty wide ranging. And really, the book focuses on the problem of uh, how the Old Testament portrays violence and how it portrays God and God's view of and or participation in violence. So if you're anything like me or like pretty much everybody I've ever talked to that has any opinion whatsoever about the Bible, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of an important topic. Uh, And so Matt has done some really, really great work at uh, helping us see the loving God, not in spite of or behind the scriptures, but in the scriptures. So hopefully you're going to find this conversation as helpful as I did. Uh, Feel free to reach out with any questions that you might have, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. But without any further ado, my conversation with so you're you're in vancouver is this correct yeah that's right yeah how vancouver. about yourself yeah so i'm on the other coast uh i'm on okay. uh, i'm in new brunswick so so you're not canadian though you grew up in the in the u.s correct yeah just a uh, permanent residency here we'll we'll we aim to become citizens Okay, bold choice. Uh, within the next, I don't know, couple years. Okay, have you taken the, like the maple syrup test yet, just to make sure that that they take a DNA, they just they <laughs> take your blood to see how how much of the how much you've had. Yeah, exactly. Like, you... uh, not yet. Um, no. but yeah, I am trying to like figure out like the whole. I think you're supposed to swear loyalty to the king. 
Well, and, that's a, an innovation. Yeah, that's fine. And, I, and I know it's just a formality, but I'm like, is there any way to get out of that? I don't really want to swear loyalty to the king. I've only got one king. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and just, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird. But I'm trying to repent for all the, like, pledging allegiance to the flag that I did growing up. And so uh, that that's, uh, and then to become a citizen, like, do I just sort of bite the bullet and... You just mumble that part. I don't know how, to, to what degree they actually hold you accountable to the, how I know how well what, you pronounce the words. But and what would constitute disloyalty to the king? Tweets, negative tweets. Yeah, um, <laughs> holding any sort of opinions that are contrary to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's funny. I grew up in a. I spent a good period of time, not all of my schooling, but a good period in an actual like a Christian elementary school. And so yeah. there we, I don't know if you ever would have done this, but we pledged allegiance to the Christian flag. Yeah. Um, uh, I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the God for whom it stands. <laughs> Is that it? Or, or like, <laughs> that's far too close to the American one for me. I'm not really sure. Oh, yeah. It's probably the same thing, but I think they just like word swapped. I remember. Uh, and just yeah. kind of like, just, you know, find and replace in a word document and that's what came up yeah i'm curious what what the pledge is i said it growing up through elementary as well yeah interesting um so uh thank you for joining me today from all the way across the the other end of north america uh yeah you're at you're, so. you're at regent mm-hmm. how long have you been at regent for now uh i've been here just since 2020 okay yep came during the pandemic what a time yeah, what a time to be alive. So uh, the, we're going to chat today about your book, uh, Flood and Fury, which I have been uh, Old Testament violence and the shalom of God being the kind of byline, which I have just been like, really, really enjoying. And uh, oh, the reason thanks. I picked it up was because um, I'm leading a, a through the Bible plan at my church. Mm. Hmm. And so we decided to do all those different kinds of ways that you can do it, right? You can start with the words of Jesus, you know, pick up the gospel of John and start there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could try to do it chronologically. Uh, we just went with uh, a Bible project version of it that has like, they essentially kind of try to lay it out via at least the old Testament of the Tanakh, kind of the way that mm-hmm. the Hebrew scriptures are laid mm-hmm. out and then kind of carry on through the new Testament, just in terms of how it's laid out canonically. So nothing to do yep. with chronology or whatever. Uh, Anyway, all that meant is that you started with Genesis, right? So, yeah. and, and that starts you right smack in the middle of uh, mm-hmm. some absolutely beautiful um, stories and also some, what can be construed as some pretty horrendous violence. Yeah. And so right away, you know, in January, we're leading some people who have been seasoned Christians for a long time and haven't necessarily mm-hmm. engaged with the Bible uh, kind of as a primary source, as it were, mm-hmm. like actually reading it. Uh, and then also some people who honestly, there's a couple people who are kind of like, oh, we'll just kind of explore, explore this together. So. Right away, I was like, uh, and I kind of should have known uh, that it was going to be coming because I have read the Bible, I promised. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wasn't really as prepared for how to answer some of the questions that surround mm-hmm. violence in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this was on my list, and I, I picked it up, and mm-hmm. I found it really, really quite helpful. Uh, but the reason it was on my list was because I've heard you talk about it. And one of the reasons I've heard you mm-hmm. talk about it is because I've heard your voice far more than you've heard mine. So you have been one of the the co-hosts of the OnScript podcast for for how long now? I'm obviously you helped launch it. So how long? Yeah. So uh, Matt and I started it in 2016 and where like audio quality didn't matter so much, just as long as there was content. It's funny how much things changed just since 2016 in terms of expectations around audio. 
sure. in podcasts. Yeah. Um, like back then, it was okay to have a podcast that sounded like it was in a tin can uh, <laughs> as long as the script. content was decent. Right. And, and um, but then pretty quickly, I realized like people just stop listening, even if the content's good, uh, if, if the audio is an issue. And There's not that we've ironed out all of those issues. We still have issues, but, you know, it's a lot better now. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic, we were kind of joking before we hit record there. The pandemic has made a lot of mm-hmm. innovations. A lot of people who were uh, just consumers have all of a sudden become producers. Of, of I know. We, yeah. We have the to, yeah. Yeah. Pastors are, are now like, well, at least for a time, had to be YouTubers, which is right. <laughs> not what people signed up for. We're not uh, we're not done reeling uh, the after effects of that, but um, so so yeah the um, the on screen podcast I mean for me personally has been an incredibly helpful podcast mm-hmm. and if you've never heard of it then you definitely should check it out. Uh, a number of different uh, biblical scholars kind of take turns from what I can kind of gather. Essentially, it's mm-hmm. kind of like hey if if you're if you're working through some material and you and you have mm-hmm. a guest that you'd like to interview and you happen to be in this this quorum of people then you can kind of hop in and do an episode so some people yeah. you hear their voices a little bit more often because they're probably going through different, mm-hmm. different seasons but uh it's it's quite a an array of people that you have on on the team yeah. and it brings a lot of like really really great like actual academic uh hmm. scholarship to people like myself who get an opportunity to just kind of listen to it and get get helped um but you're an legit academic you're an actual phd uh and so uh i, I don't know what it was like in 2016 Mm-hmm. But I, I do kind of have a bit of a, a slight finger on the pulse of what it is in 2023. Mm-hmm. And do you do you find it difficult, or are there are there challenges in trying to walk the line between being a an academic and then I, I guess writing academically or presenting mm-hmm. academically, and then writing, presenting, YouTubing, podcasting, mm-hmm. sharing with a sort of non academic public that are that are on the other end of that. Um, I think. I think it was hard at first, um, you know, for a lot of us coming out of PhD programs, we, we might've received some training in teaching. Like when I went to Emory, we had a teacher training program that we all had to go through. So, which is more than a lot of institutions do. But when I got my first job in England at Westminster Theological Center, I, I had to suddenly do a lot of public speaking and that was something I wasn't really used to and had to learn how to navigate. And, and so you know, if you're if you're going into a a job where you don't do a lot of public facing stuff and you're only in a classroom, maybe with like master's students or even doctoral students, then you probably never develop those muscles in terms uh, that are more public facing and the habit of speaking to a generalist audience, but it's something I happen to really enjoy doing. I like the high level academic stuff. I like the seminars here at Regent where, you know, the upper level seminars where we really go deep, but I also appreciate being able to speak to people. Like I just did a thing here at Regent on the world of Leviticus and it was just for anyone, general public, and and I like the challenge of that and having to put things in terms that are accessible, but also the excitement of introducing people to to the sort of benefits of scholarship that maybe they haven't had access to. So so for me, I like the balance. Yeah, it's challenging at times, um, but in general, people are hungry for it if it's communicated in a way that they can grapple with. 
And and so I don't I don't think public facing communication needs to be really simple where you avoid all big words and you just sort of play to the lowest common denominator in terms of the depth of content. But you do have to define your terms and explain the concepts and bring people with you. So I, I appreciate I like that process. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Um, and one thing I've noticed about you uh, is that, I mean, it's funny, I, before we, we uh, clicked record here, we're saying mm-hmm. that you weren't born in Canada. Uh, you're mm-hmm. actually an American, God bless you. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the, the tone of voice when you deliver uh, your, your, your comedy, your, your, your jokes, there is this sort of, there is a British influence to your humor. You have a bit of a deadpan sort of a, yeah. of a, of a, uh, I don't want to say Monty Python necessarily, but a, you have a you have a British way about you in terms of your uh, a Commonwealth way in terms of your humor. Uh, <laughs> so I, and you use humor a lot. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I've noticed that it's very it's part of a lot of your um, your podcasts in terms of how you're doing mm-hmm. the interviews. You guys have these kind of kind of silly lightning round things that you do with a lot of questions. But even just in the introductions, when you're kind of suggesting how people could share, uh, mm-hmm. you have your annual uh, is it. Dr. Irvine Shablatson. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is, I mean, I don't know to what degree you're involved in that, but that is yeah. Some, yeah. absolutely epic well, no, stuff. I'm, I'm heavily involved in that. That's, that's <laughs> my, yeah. Epic, epic stuff. But then even, even in flood and fury, um, there mm-hmm. were a few times where jokes uh, kind of made their way across the page. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so is that, is that commonplace? Is that, is that something that you just see all the time kind of in, in the world in which you, yeah, kind of yeah, live and move and have your being or I don't, I don't know I think um I mean if I were being pious about it I would say that like it's a very Hebrew way of dealing with hard subjects because um there's a lot of humor in the Bible and some of the most violent texts and um I mean a lot Elijah or Elisha calling down curse curses on these youths for you know, making fun of his bald head and then the, the bears maul, maul these kids, you know, I mean, it's very violent and awful, but it's also funny. Um, and <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a chapter in Ellen Davis's opening Israel scripture, which I use for my OT introduction here at Regent. And, um, and she has a chapter on Esther and it's called joking about genocide. And, and I think it's a, it's an apt name for, talking about the book of Esther because Esther is dealing with the subject of the threatened eradication of the Jewish people. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, you can't, you don't have a heavier subject, sure. but it uses so much humor in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the humor pertains to things like, you know, how high the gallows are and who gets impaled on it or that, you know, or hung or whatever, however you translate that. Um, so so there's a lot of humor in the Bible. So, but I'm not saying that's not where my humor derives from, but I, I just make the point that like, it's a way of grappling with hard subjects. Sure. Um, and it's, you know, it can be a kind of catharsis as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but probably for me, it just comes down to that like inner seventh grader that we all have and it never goes away and you might as well just embrace it. So um <laughs> It was funny when I got hired in England, the the team there was trying to like figure out who I was, you know, like there's that moment of like, well, who is this guy they're bringing in? And, and quickly they, 
I think warm to me because they realized I joked like they joked, you know, and, right. and it has, it, there's a lot of like giving each other a hard time, but yeah, that deadpan sort of humor, dry humor is, is very much appreciated there. I don't know how much it's, it's appreciated here. Um, but I, nevertheless, I persist. I think Canadians, um, yeah, I mean, it, there, there's no such thing as a uniform Canadian because there's no such thing as a, a uniform Canadian, yeah. really. But, uh, yeah, but across the Vancouver. board, yeah, yeah across yeah. the board, mo- for the most part, sarcasm mm-hmm. is kind of our love language. Yeah. Uh, and so I think you're probably going to fit in, although <laughs> in in new demographics and new Canadians, which mm-hmm. I, I can only presume that British Columbia is doing the same kind of thing as New Brunswick is, which is that you're just seeing a skyrocketing uh, influx of new Canadians all the time. Yeah, um, yeah that that doesn't play so some humor doesn't yeah. play and sarcasm uh, it, it definitely doesn't it, play. it it um it has its limits and yeah. my problem is that part of my favorite form of humor is when people don't necessarily know that i'm joking and so that that only that only makes it more anxiety pr- producing for abby my wife because uh, right. she's constantly having to tell people that i'm joking she's just joking He's yeah, just joking. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, like, it's a joke for you as much as it is for anybody else. This exactly. And it's very self-centered <laughs> to have that kind of humor. Perfect. So oh, I, you know, good. I've, I've room for growth. It's good to identify goals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned humor in the, the Bible. I mean, is some of that, this is a leading question. I think I know the answer, uh, but is some of that lost because of translation? So mm-hmm. like, we just don't see, we don't see the joke sometimes because the word for word doesn't allow yeah. for the kind of like, hey, this punchline doesn't work in French the way it does in English, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely that dynamic. Um, and also a little bit of reticence on the part of translators to to uh, translate some of the the sexual humor in the Bible as well. And so some of that gets edited out in translation because they go for like a dynamic equivalent of the sense of the the joke when the joke is maybe more raw. Wow. Um, and, and so there's, there's that issue as well. Wanting to sanitize the Bible from the Bible. Hey, mm-hmm. well, that's uh, probably a pretty good uh, bridge into flood and fury. So, cause that's kind of, I think one of the potential things that we want to do when mm-hmm. we come to violence mm-hmm. in the Bible, right. As we mm-hmm. want to go either, I mean, there's so many different approaches like, oh, you know, look, it's, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, it's, he's, he's pretty terrible. This God and it all, it's all written in, in black and white and sometimes in red. Um, or we go, I uh, know it's, it's probably not as bad as it, as it sounds. And we want to kind of downplay it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, your approach in this book is that you kind of want to do neither of those things. You mm-hmm. kind of want to mm-hmm. really you want to say well, let's really see what it says mm-hmm. and uh and then let's wrestle with it um and so listen uh, writing a book is no small feat so uh, the amount of time that it would have taken to put into this, this is not just like a whim that you had on the saturday morning and said oh, maybe i'll mm-hmm. go to uh you know a couple hundred pages on this topic i know that you've been working in violence in particular uh for a long time uh mm-hmm. we could figure out all kinds of reasons why but from your perspective why? What's the what's the driving driving goal that you're you're uh, you're working towards? Yeah, it's um, I mean, the goal is to hopefully bring people toward uh, a deeper, more kind of rich and nuanced understanding of God's goodness, 
Like to me, that that's where I hope people end up having grappled with the topic and and having gone through the book. Um, and I know it's not a formulaic thing where you can just well, if you just pick up this book that should deal with your with whatever issues you have on the subject. But I think to provide people with an alternative to the sort of certainty that there's no problem here or on the other extreme, this is so bad, it's irredeemable. Mm-hmm. And um, so so that's that's the the goal in in the book. Um, and I wanted to do it in a way that dealt with the complexities of the text itself, too. Because it's not just that the issue is complex, the Bible's also complex. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that complexity is the fact that Scripture has its own sort of multifaceted ways of thinking about the problem of violence. And, and so to take a—and um, that's why in the book I just dealt with the flood and the conquest, is because I wanted to go deeper in a way that's accessible, but— but that that considered the issue from multiple angles. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk in the end of the book about the idea that violence is a wicked problem, and you know, a wicked problem is a technical designation about a kind of problem that um, is is multifaceted, that has no obvious answer, but nevertheless is still worth working on, even mm-hmm. though arrival at a solution is is not only unlikely. It's also something that you don't even know when you've arrived at it. So, I mean, if you stop and do the thought experiment, what would it look like if the problem of violence was resolved for me? It's an interesting one mm-hmm. because w- would it mean that you no longer have any questions about the Bible? Um, well, that could be because you're ignoring certain things. All right. Well, it's because you've intellectually worked through every issue in the Bible. Well, I hope you have, you know, nine lives uh, to do that. Um, is it, you know, so so even like the possibility of arriving at a solution to the problem of violence is something like we have to think about whether that's reasonable uh, or possible, or that we'd even be in a position to know when we've arrived at that destination. Um, and a classic example of a wicked problem is the problem of poverty. And you know, poverty is something for which there's no uh, there's no like obvious answer to. How would you know when you've solved it? Right? Is it when everyone has the same income, say a roof over their heads? What kind of roof? Um, you know, everyone lives in the equal opportunity, or is it equality of of you know possession? Yeah. So yeah, um, but because you can't solve poverty doesn't mean we throw up our hands and say oh well you know i guess we'll just leave that one <laughs> and, and similarly with violence in the bible like we i don't think we can resolve it fully or even know if we've resolved it but that doesn't mean we just leave it and so there's a kind of working at the problem that i think is um is it leads us toward the goodness of god mm-hmm. um it it draws us into the wonder of the text. And I think it, it also provides a, um, a posture toward our relationship with God that's good to foster as well. 
So for me, like wrestling with the problem of violence isn't just because I've, I've got to hang up with violence and I've got to work it out. And so I wrote a book. Um, in fact, like it's one of several issues that I have questions about and challenges about, you know, regarding um, in my faith. But it's not like this this juggernaut issue for me that I just can't get away from. And that's why I write about it. It's because I actually think it's a, a good discipleship opportunity and and it touches on sort of issues of our posture toward God and scripture that are worth thinking about um, around that problem. So that's part of why I ended up going there as well. Right. Yeah. And I mean, implicit in that and not even just implicit, I think it's almost explicit in what you said is that you have a faith in some respects that you mm-hmm. uh uh, that you want to maintain or that you yeah. want to, and, and one that you want to help other people maintain. And so I think yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to remember that because I want to anchor back to that, at least mm-hmm. at the end of our conversation here. Cause I think, I think there's something important in that um, because not every book that you will pick up any, every blog that you'll read, every podcast mm-hmm. that you'll listen to that talks about the problem of violence in the old Testament will be to that end. It will mm-hmm. not necessarily be mm-hmm. help, help you think it will always be to help you think more uh, religiously faithfully about it. It could just be to help you insert, you know, something else in the blank here in terms of what you want next. Um, But then also, I mean, the idea that what you said with wicked problems would remind me of an Andy Stanleyism is surprising given Mm -hmm. apparently his stance on the old Testament uh, in some respects, but is the idea that he often talks about certain problems being uh, not problems to solve, but tensions to manage. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would do wonder if there's something in that where it's like, th- this is not, this is not something that we can just kind of go, Oh, phew, we've taken care of it. Um, yeah. Now we can hopefully, I mean, a lot of people, there's two things here. There's what we read back into the text. So mm-hmm. trying to understand what God uh, you, you, I think you bring up three different ideas, what he either mm-hmm. did, what he uh, commanded mm-hmm. or what he condoned. Right. Those mm-hmm. are the kind of three mm-hmm. different things. So either, mm-hmm. either God, divinely and actually does certain Mm -hmm. things uh or he tells other people to do it hey it's gonna be your job or he kind of stands back and watches it so this is the Mm -hmm. problem that what we read in the the text but then also there's a problem of kind of going forward how are christians Mm -hmm. uh, people who claim or even jews for that matter people who claim a faith in the god of the bible how are Mm -hmm. they to then live out uh the world that kind of goes in in two different uh, directions, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, you bring up one really, really important thing that comes up over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I mean, it, to me, even though I have read this section uh, of the Bible umpteen times, mm-hmm. I never thought about it quite this way. So mm-hmm. uh, you talk about, uh, I believe we're talking about Exodus 20 uh, verses four through six. I actually, had to, mm-hmm. I didn't look it up again, but it's mm-hmm. one of the, yeah. the, one of the so-called 10 commandments or 10 words, mm-hmm. right? So I'll mm-hmm. just read it here. It says, uh, and everyone's heard this part, probably. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form mm-hmm. of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. This is the the NIV mm-hmm. or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, mm-hmm. the Lord your God, am a jealous God, mm-hmm. punishing the children for the sin of the parents mm-hmm. to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So already he's a jealous God. He's mm-hmm. punishing those who hate him. Mm-hmm. This is not a good, mm-hmm. not a good look. But then, mm-hmm. but then this last one. But but showing love mm-hmm. to a thousand generations of those who love me mm-hmm. to keep my commandments. And so on, on, yeah. on multiple times, I think on page 16 of the book, 
-hmm. God's, you say God's mercy outweighs his severity at Mm -hmm. least 500 to one by your math. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And go on to say that there are certain characteristics, and this is a bold claim, Mm -hmm. uh, but you say there are certain characteristics of God uh, that are more core Mm -hmm. to his identity than Mm -hmm. other characteristics of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, I mean, this, that's probably kind of earth shattering for somebody who thinks, well, first of all, I've always heard it said that all sin is the same and that mm. God is, God is simple in some respects, uh, that he mm. is kind of like, he is what he is. Yeah. Uh, and so all the, that must mean that everything is sort of an equilibrium inside of who mm. he is. Uh, mm. you know, so what do you mean by the claim that there are certain characteristics of, of God that are more core than others? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot there. Um, just a word on that passage. So Exodus 20, the giving of the 10 commandments or 10 words, like you said, um, comes prior to Israel's breaking of the first two commandments, namely having, you know, not making a, an image and having no other God before me. And so um, what's, what's important in the sequence of Exodus is that uh, Israel breaks those first two commandments. and And then there's a whole like debacle between God and Israel and God saying to the, uh, kind of initiating this, uh, this sort of um, preliminary judgment against them, then saying he's not going to go with them into the land. And then Moses pleads with God, appeals to his reputation. And then God says, um, and he says to God, I want to see your glory. And there's this episode on the mountain then where God passes in front of Moses in Exodus 34. And it's as he passes, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, um, showing steadfast love to thousands of generations. Okay, there's like the, that's where I got the 500 to one minimum of 2000 there. Um, uh, and then it goes on, like not leaving the guilty unpunished, punishing children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. And there's the maximum four. So there's 2000 to four or 500 to one ratio. Um, Good math. Show your work. That's um, good. But in that restatement of his identity, first of all, he puts his steadfast love and compassion before the jealous and punishing. Mm -hmm. So there's a reversal that happens in 34. He also leaves off the part about um, of those who, uh, obey me or uh, keep my commands, um, the condition that's stated in Exodus 20. Mm-hmm. And so you get this sort of revisiting of God's character after Israel breaks the command uh, of, uh, you know, stated in Exodus 20, where God's character is unveiled in its further depths. And so it's as if at the moment of Israel's biggest failure, they get this deeper insight into God's character to find out that he's more merciful than they even imagined. Um, and so that Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is a really foundational text in the Bible, um, not only because it's it happens to offer this like important statement, and it's from God's own mouth, and you know, the name Yahweh is twice uttered there at the beginning, um, but because it's also quoted a number of times in the Old Testament directly, like 12 or 13, 14 times, and then uh, echoes of that text reverberate throughout the Old Testament and on into the New. And so it has this kind of primacy 
for thinking about God's character. And in that character description, God's it holds together, first of all, God's justice and mercy. And so it, it, it doesn't allow us to let those things spin apart. And, and in our minds, like it's really hard to hold together justice and mercy. Like, okay, a, a violation happens, a breach of the relationship. Is God going to punish or show mercy? Like how, how can you do both of those at once? Um, but but the text says, hold them together, even if you can't. <laughs> um, they do belong together, but they're not held together as co-equals. There is a disproportionate or superabundance to God's mercy in that co- character constellation. So however you think about God's justice and mercy in concert with one another, that's that tension to maintain, um, then make sure that you're you're sort of portrait of mercy and compassion is 500 times bigger, you know, in your thinking about God's who God is. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, like the fact that that sits at the center of God's character as it's revealed in the old Testament is really important for orienting me toward a lot of the other texts about God. And I'm not just picking my favorite there by saying, Oh, Exodus 34 is the foundation. Um, within the Old Testament itself, like they treat it as the kind of prime revelation of God. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's reading with the grain of the text to see it that way. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. It's really helpful. And then I think you say, I don't have the quote directly in front of me, but one of the things that you say is if we believe in a, uh, an eschaton, a, you know, an end of the age where sin is no more, then yeah. God's divine wrath can't exist in a place where there's nothing essentially for him to be wrathful against and so like that part of yeah. his character it's is like kind of like contingent yeah wall, exactly yeah. yeah so kind mm-hmm. of is a, but the love even the, yeah. the love that we see kind of pre-exists creation in the triune yeah. god that has to be in some respects mm-hmm. even though time is uh a tough one to kind of wrap our heads around here nonetheless mm-hmm. that it's it's kind of something that exists outside of creation and therefore it has to be in some respects at a different kind of core than say yeah his response to sin would be right yeah, that's right. So it's there's a um, th- there are derivative qualities of God that are responsive to human sin or human brokenness or something like that. And so, while they are like they have a prominence in the narrative of the Bible, theologically speaking, they don't have the same. They don't sit at the center of God's character. Um, mm-hmm. In the way that we can say God is love, we can't say God is wrath. And there's a reason why we can't say that. Um, and that has to do with the temporariness of, of God's wrath. And we could get into like the positive function of wrath. So it's not always a bad thing. Sure. Um, but it's important to, to kind of make that distinction. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't avoid it. It just acknowledges yeah. it for what it, for what it is. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the two kind of major incidents that you look at are flood and the fury. Nice alliteration. Mm-hmm. Good good preacher <laughs> move. Uh, so the great flood, uh, and then the conquest story of of Joshua. So in the great flood, one of the things that you mentioned in Genesis uh, six six, you say the first emotion that's ascribed to God mm-hmm. as we kind of go through here is not mm-hmm. wrath, mm-hmm. but is a, a word that you would uh, translate as as pain. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, in the flood story, this is on page 68 and 69 of the book, the flood story never mentions divine anger. Mm-hmm. Instead, uh, God's grief actually takes center stage in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you, sometimes even biblical scholars will talk about like God's anger as the motivator for sending the flood, that he's angry over sin. And so he decides in his wrath to punish and send this flood. And, and that's not at all the emotion that's depicted there. And, and I think that's significant um, because it tells us something about how we're supposed to read the story. That, that there was a, um, within the story world, if we could say that, there's an inevitability then to the flood once creation is ruined by violence mm-hmm. that grieves God. And, and so literally he's pained to his heart is the, the Hebrew there. And he's sorry that he made humankind. Um, so, which, um, you know, is a, is a challenging idea for some of us to wrap our heads around about God, like changing his mind or feeling sorry and things like that. But if you've had kids, um, I mean, it's not that hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then with a wrath paradigm, people will then um, look at Noah offering a sacrifice after the flood. He comes out of the ark, offers up uh, animals as a burnt offering. Uh, and they'll read that as like appeasing God's wrath. And and it's a Thanksgiving offering for deliverance. So the, the story wants us to read it, at least, in terms of God's grief and sorrow. And, and then Noah's gratitude on the far side of the flood story. Mm-hmm. Now, we might still sort of read between the lines and be like, yeah, but you just wiped out all creation. So you might be sorry, but you still did something awful. But I think, as, at least as a starting point, mm-hmm. it's worth noting that. Yeah. And we won't have time to, to I mean, you, you, you build a, a really quite, I don't, I don't think I'd describe it as an argument, but you build mm-hmm. uh, a lot of kind mm-hmm. of content uh, around mm-hmm. this idea that this is in some respects can be seen as uh, of those three that we mentioned before, about kind mm-hmm. of, you know, causing it, commanding it and allowing it yeah. is, is a lot closer to the, to the latter as mm-hmm. almost a natural consequence of all of the decisions that humanity has made leading up to, to this point yeah. and the violence that has kind of mm-hmm. already ruined uh, ruined the earth, which I thought was really uh, some really insightful stuff there, in particular about um, uh, male female relations. I guess maybe we can we'll yeah. leave something in the book for people to to want yeah. to make sure that they dig into. But it was really yeah. quite eye opening for me. Mm. So then the flood is obviously a huge one, uh, uh, but I think the truth is is that uh, a lot of people are willing to say, "Yeah, I mean, let's say skeptics, yeah, but the flood didn't happen." So mm-hmm. I mean, this is a story. So you know, whether it's whether you can kind of uh, minimize it and put a good spin on it is not as mm-hmm. less a lot less important than what happens when the Israelites cross the Rubicon, rather across the Jordan yeah. uh, into into Israel, because like whether or not this has been mythologized, they actually think that this is closer to a historical event. And so yeah. the things that are outlined yeah. here are probably harder for some people who have done at least some of the research to dismiss mm-hmm. as easily when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you make some really interesting things here. So one of the things, I mean, there's, a, a, I think that you spill more ink on, on this uh, mm-hmm. aspect of it than you do in the first half. And, but what it all kind of comes down to on page 132, you, you make this comment, you say, actually, uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua never mentions a mm-hmm. single Canaanite altar 
or idle. So we're talking mm-hmm. about the idea that all these harem commands and the idea to go in and and to to burn it all down and to clear all of the the kind of the uh, uncleanness, as it were, from the land because the land itself has been ruined by these people. Uh, and so they, you know, go ahead, wipe them out, and then take the land for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mm-hmm. the and, and it's this it is to be done. But it says that Joshua never mentions a single Canaanite altar or idol, but actually mm-hmm. the named threats, the ones that become identified were on the inside. They were actually yeah. to be found amongst the people of Israel themselves. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah, so at the at the end of the book, there's Joshua's farewell speech in 23 and 24. And and in it there's a real surprise. He he turns to the people and he says, "Put away the gods that are among you." And and you're you're reading that and thinking, oh my goodness, like what are the Israelites doing with idols? Because I thought that was the reason they had to go in and wipe out the Canaanites, is is that they are idolatrous and irredeemably so. And and so therefore Israel needed to create the sacred space for them to worship God freely and without interference from the idols of the nations. And so um, it does mention like the gods of the nations at the end there. So there is a sort of slight hint that they are around them, but in terms of actual like idols in their midst, it's, it's twice mentioned as being within Israel. Hmm. Um, and so, so the, the end of the book portrays Israel that way. And then the beginning of the book, we find out that the people are uncircumcised and, and that, once they cross into enemy territory, they have to become circumcised. So they enter the land as an uncircumcised people. And at the end of the book, we find out that they're idolatrous. And interestingly enough, Israel is not punished for either of those things. Now you could blame the one on their parents, right? Like it's the previous generation. That's why they're not circumcised, but idolatry, it's not exactly treated lightly in the Bible. And, and Joshua's commendation is hey put those away like get rid of them um he doesn't commission the levites to strap on their swords and go slaughter everyone and their family with an idol which you would maybe expect and and you know based on the uh, levites actions in the wilderness so so i think we the idea that the threats are internal is is very apparent there um, and also in the story of Achan. So there's this contrast that's created in the early chapters between Rahab, who's an insider who, or outsider who acts like an insider in that mm-hmm. she confesses Yahweh and is um, included in the covenant. And then, and then Achan, by contrast, is someone who kind of lusts after the wealth of Shinar, which is associated with Babylon. So it's almost like he, he desires the wealth of empires Mm. and, and he and his family are haremed to use the Hebrew term wiped out. Okay. So, so there's this contrast then of the threat, the internal threat with, with Achan and his uh, family. So um, that doesn't resolve the problems of violence in the story, but it is notable that you have to go outside the book of Joshua to build the case that the Canaanites were awful. Um, the book itself does not foreground that, but instead foregrounds the problems that are internal to Israel. And I think that's in, 
an important clue about how we're supposed to read the story um, in, in terms of an, a book that's meant to be read by subsequent generations that are not dealing primarily with threats from outside the nation, but with threats that are internal to the nation. That's how the book is designed or well positioned to be taken up. Um, and then when it comes to dealing with threats from outside, like it does touch on those things, they're they're of a different nature than idolatry, or, the, or I should say, idolatry is kind of reframed in terms of the threats of um, the seductions of the empires that that rule over them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so those are just a few notes on that. Yeah. Fascinating. So lest it seem like I'm doing absolutely nothing but applauding. Uh, I did have one question. It's on page 135 along these yeah. lines. You mentioned, mm-hmm. um, this is a quote from Rachel Petit, maybe? I'm not really mm-hmm. sure how you pronounce that last name. It sounds like French, yeah. but it's not. Uh, it says, if the, the harem commands, the ones from Deuteronomy, were carried out with any regularity, there would not be a city left standing in Israel, right? The idea yeah. being that, like, in other words, if, if we say, you know, when you, when the city, you know, falls to idol worship, whatever, then you should go ahead and raise it yeah. to the ground. If that were the case, then, you know, so I think if I understand correctly, this quote mm-hmm. is used as an opportunity to say, well, clearly this is not the case because the cities mm-hmm. remain people. There's, yeah. There are still Israelites that, that lived. Yeah. Uh, and so because of that, uh, this was treated, this was understood from a very early time to be a hyperbolic kind of a statement mm-hmm. to be like mm-hmm. the same way that you kind of would say like, man, uh, you should have seen it. We crushed those, those guys this weekend when we were at the football yeah. game, whatever, yeah. when they weren't actually crushed, they were merely beaten. Um, so, but is it at least conceivable that somebody would look at that and say, yes, it's possible that this, this is an implication of hyperbolic intent mm-hmm. behind the command, but is it also conceivable that someone could say, actually, this is just merely uh, a lack of utter faithfulness mm-hmm. to the command, because we do have, like as you already mentioned, instances mm-hmm. where people are held to what seems to be a much more literalistic interpretation mm-hmm. of these things, right? Like Aiken, or uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at um, Binhas and whatnot, and yeah. you know, like there, there are sometimes when some crazy stuff happens, and like yeah. as individual instances, we say, well, this seems like this is actually an enactment of the kind of yeah. harem commands that we do see outlined. And so what, what, what's the tension there? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd say that, you know, Joshua doesn't, first of all, there's no censure in the text for their, you know, failure to wipe out the cities of, or the, the households of those who had idols. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the narrator tells us that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So, I mean, obviously like there were individual sins and problems that like Achan that are exceptions to that. But on the whole, if you had to generalize about the people, they were faithful. And so it's conceivable from the point of view of Joshua. This sounds kind of controversial as I'm thinking about it, but it's conceivable that the people could be by and large on the whole faithful to God and still have kind of lingering issues of idolatry that they need to deal with. Um, I do struggle with idolatry yeah. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, uh, the, the sort of overall picture of the nation. Right. And and there are like tipping points, right, in in a nation's health where they've 
perhaps through the leadership or perhaps like through its pervasiveness where um you know they they fall headlong into idolatry and and the land is filled with it and that's a problem um, just like with violence there's there can be violence but from a biblical point of view there's a point where the land is filled with violence mm. and there's a distinction between those two things yeah. so um I think that's in, important to keep in mind as well. Um, but I, I do think that the the book wants us to take the threat of idolatry seriously. Um, and because we are, we're not to read it in isolation from Deuteronomy with those stringent commands about the threat of idolatry. Uh, obviously, Deut- Joshua is written with a view to Deuteronomy, so I don't mean to isolate them completely from one another. Um, but the the way you deal with idolatry has a hyperbolic element to it, just like Jesus commands. And I make this analogy in the book, drawing from Walter Moberly, when Jesus says that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, or your hand cut it off, or your foot cut it off, um, that you don't take that command of Jesus literally, but you all, but you do take it seriously, mm-hmm. right? So he did, his point is not like, oh, I don't really mean it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's not the correct response, right. but neither is the correct response. Like, okay, here we go and start gouging your eye out. Yeah, right? You got a spoon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, to your point. So another podcast that's been, that has spun off of the OnScript brand is the mm-hmm. biblical world podcast, which yeah. uh, I find fascinating uh, mm-hmm. as well. And so, uh, so in the world of archeology, span one of the things that we, yeah. there's often brought up a, a lot recently, especially by people who I think are doing their best to um, disprove the Bible or disprove mm-hmm. certain tenets of the Bible. will say, look at all the little idols that they found strewn mm-hmm. all across mm-hmm. the Holy land or whatever. Like this is clearly yeah. proof in some respects that they, I don't really know. I mean, the, the sentence is something to the effect of that. They didn't believe the things that were written down. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it is kind of also just straight up proof of the things that were written down, I guess, yeah. in some sort of that there were, as you said here, like they're there, they could have been doing their very best as they knew it, as they were able to in that that time to serve Yahweh, the, the one God of Israel. Yeah. yeah. And yet also to understand that contextually, yeah, like as some people say, I love I love God, but I cuss a little or whatever. Like that, that <laughs> they have these these things that are just kind of yeah. like come along with them and their baggage. And so, yeah. to the one is not um, it's not an excuse, but it's a reason. It's yeah. it's not just that it gives them the opportunity to get off the hook, but it does explain in some respects some of the things that yeah. they were still kind of struggling with as they, as they evolved in the land. Yeah. I, th- I think there's um, sometimes because maybe our dominant image of God in the old Testament, we forget God's leniency mm-hmm. and, and his tolerance. Um, and part of it is the effect of Deuteronomy's rhetoric. That mm-hmm. is the rhetoric itself is uncompromising. Like, it's life or death. You need to choose whether you're with God or not. And mm-hmm. that that's an important strand in the Old Testament's message. Um, God is utterly holy. And so don't bring any impurity into the sanctuary. It's a deadly situation if you do. Right. But even like to take that latter example, um, they have an annual Day of Atonement ritual in Israel. 
outlined in Leviticus 16, where they had to purify the sanctuary of all its impurities and abominations and, and you know, whatnot. So that tells you that God allows these things to accumulate throughout the year. Right. And you wouldn't know that from reading all the other laws. You would just, just think that like Nadab and Abihu, you get zap fried if you, if you make one false move. Right. Um, so sometimes like even in those stringent, systems like the sacrificial ritual impurity system or the deuteronomic um show no mercy system you, you you can lose sight of the fact that read holistically there's also a great deal about god's leniency in these texts um and and so that's why a, a kind of total reading nuanced reading of the of the text is important and what i was trying to can I get at in the book? Yeah, well, I think very masterfully done. So Flood and Fury, you can find it all the places where you find books. I, I do want to tip into one direction that I kind of anchored earlier on in the conversation. Yeah. And um, and so there were other things that I wanted to get into, but you know what? Mm -hmm. We'll leave them, mm -hmm. we'll leave them for the B side. Uh, but the the and I'll probably frame this poorly, um, but if you'll allow me to stumble through it, I'll, Go I'll it. hopefully get a question going here. Because one of the things that you kind of said at the end there was just like the idea that what I'm hearing you say is that from your perspective, the Bible itself is worth trying to understand properly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's worth trying to understand the God behind the Bible, the God of the Bible, the God in the Bible, mm -hmm. um, and, and understand how the Bible itself uh, reveals him, speaks of him, and helps his, the people who believe in him to be able to honor him uh, yeah. kind of more fully in the world. But all that is presumptuous. Uh, are built upon the presumption that the Bible actually, A, that the Bible is kind of important, and B, that there is the God that's behind the Bible. Like those two things, as far as I can tell, are kind of non-negotiable for your approach to make any sense. Yeah. Like there's no, there's no reason to do all this acrobatics if yeah. those two things are not kind of like in the background of your understanding. So somebody mm -hmm. who approaches even the book mm -hmm. that you wrote, um, if they're looking for something other than that, and, and I mean, it, it could give them some, I mean, it's, it's, it's very well researched and it's very well written and it has all, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, great footnotes. So it's like the academics are there, but those presumptions kind of stand for how mm -hmm. the average reader would even want to engage with the book. Yeah. And that's the reason I say that is because that's not, uh, it's not guaranteed. So mm -hmm. I get shared, uh, sorry, that viewpoint is not mm -hmm. guaranteed when it comes to people mm -hmm. who are doing academic work on the Bible. So I get yeah. shared uh, TikTok videos uh, all the time. I get shared TikTok yeah. videos by a, a man who will remain nameless, who has, has currently become very, very good at, at, mm -hmm. at uh, bringing kind of hardcore academic research of the Bible mm -hmm. to a broader audience, able yeah. to do it via podcasting and writing. And he, there's mm -hmm. no shortage of people who are also doing that. He just happens to be kind of at the vanguard right now. Um, and, and yet, uh, so people who are coming to me and saying like, like have you thought about this, this is really interesting mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And people mm -hmm. who are saying like, this is really great, uh, academic stuff on the Bible. And mm -hmm. it is like, it's, mm -hmm. it's incredibly well-researched, very well presented. Yeah. Um, but it's not um, the word that I would use. Maybe you would use a different one. It's not being released by somebody who is a, is a confessional Christian, mm -hmm. but there's all kinds of, uh, across yeah. the spectrum on that. There are people who are like decidedly atheistic. Mm -hmm. There are people who are just kind of wide open and saying, like, I'm not really sure, but I'm not approaching anything from my actual social 
faith location. I'm trying my best mm-hmm. to be as objective as possible in my work. And there are people who are trying to approach it from a faith perspective. Like they have a, a goal and the goal isn't merely objective research on mm-hmm. the Bible. It is an actual hope that there's going to be some sort of a faith response from the people mm-hmm. who are engaging mm-hmm. with this work. Are you in that last category? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm happily in the sort of confessional scholarship camp where I don't think I need to constantly bracket out my faith in in terms of like to get on with the business of scholarship. Now, there are certain like arenas in which I'm not going to foreground that, like at the Society of Biblical Literature, just for the sh- sake of shared dialogue. But in the sort of conversation around that and during that, those conferences, like maybe not when I'm presenting a paper, but uh, I happily like bring my faith to the table. And, and it's like for me, faith and scholarship and critical thinking are not sort of at, uh, at odds with one another. At times there are like uncomfortable tensions there, mm-hmm. but there are also ways that a faith bias, if you want to call it that, can help you see things that others can't see. Um, and I think we're at a time in scholarship where hopefully that's being recognized more and more that like, that's why we value um, different perspectives in scholarship and ov- like overtly bringing those perspectives to the table mm. is because we see that like coming at scripture from the vantage point of X, Y, or Z is, is insightful. And it's not just a distorting lens. Um, so I think it's, it's the productive bias of faith that I'm, I'm interested in, but, and, and also a non-threatened faith. So to me, that's important too, because there is a way of sort of bulldozing your way through any issue by just sort of asserting your faith. Um, and, and so it's a, hopefully a perspective that isn't threatened by truth and is able to weigh up something and, and consider it, but not to assume that I'm weighing it up neutrally. Um, So, so when I come to scripture, I'm coming at it as a Christian who is convinced that this same scripture shaped the life of Jesus. And so if it shaped, if Jesus was deeply immersed in the old Testament, and lived and taught as he did, then there must be something here that leads toward a life like his. So that's my sort of faith bias as I'm reading the Old Testament. So as I'm going through, I'm looking like, where is that? You know, how is it that this text can lead to Christ? Not in a simplistic way of like, oh, this points to him directly, but as a sort of overall stance toward the Bible. So I think seeing faith as a productive bias that I embrace, but I also test and and I'm also hopefully willing to say, oh, I don't know that that is a hard issue. I'm not sure what to do with that, and just leave it at that. Right? We don't have to resolve everything, or pretend like we know enough to resolve all possible objections. And that's the thing with like if you if you take an approach of like, well, I'm going to engage the skeptic. There are hundreds of texts. Someone can just throw at you and go, what do you do about this? What do you do about this? What do you do about this? And each one of those requires hours of thought. 
So you just have to like be wise about what game am I willing to play with someone who's taking that approach? And am I willing to like, is that worth it to me to invest all my energy in refuting the skeptic when it's in, when people are insatiable on that? Mm. That's good. A productive bias. Yeah, I had to say that. I mean, I had to kind of come to terms with that. I guess it was a, about a month or two ago when somebody was asking mm -hmm. me about some content. And I just said, like, I mean, I'm willing to read anything. I'll read any content. Yeah. I'll engage with it all. Um, but at this point in my life, I'm not willing to, uh, not willing to suspend my faith to do so. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's hard. Uh, because it, to, to somebody who is saying, yes, but you need to be scientific, you need to be rigorous, you need to be objective. Mm -hmm. I think what they're saying is, but you're distorting, uh, your lens is distorting what you see. And yeah. I, you used the terminology earlier about the idea that some things you can't see without that lens. And I admit yeah. that that's kind of like an inception kind of a thing, like what comes <laughs> first? Like, yeah. where did your faith come from? It came from all these other yeah. things. And, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be closed minded. I really genuinely don't. Yeah. But I also yeah. don't want to have everything on the table all the time because that's an exhausting right. and unproductive way to live your life. It, it really, it really is. And I think sometimes we forget, like, it, it's like an email where, um, you know, one of the problems with emails is that someone, so I'm a, because I'm a, a professor here at region, you know, someone could easily just send me an email. What do you do with this text? takes them like 20 seconds to write, but it might take me two hours to think through a, a really good response. And so the burden of, of time and investment and energy, when, when someone is not willing to come to the table and invest mm -hmm. themselves is sort of with the equal energy around the subject. Mm -hmm. um, then I think sometimes we just say like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to engage that subject or this isn't the venue for it. or uh, there, there's another issue, which is sometimes a, um, let's say if you, if you're worried about skeptics, like, um, someone says, well, what do you do about this text? And, and my response is, well, I'd want to have like 20 conversations prior to that, to answering that one in order to get at it. But right. I don't think we're going to go there. Right? right. So, so I can't just give you my off the cuff response. Uh, of like, I, if I just say like, oh, I surrender that to mystery, people just be like, oh, that's a cop out. Well, but like, well, there's a, there's a lot behind that, you know. But we have to. I don't think we're going to walk together to get there. Right. So better to kind of work through these things with a smaller community of people who are invested than to try to like ward off every external threat yeah we do need sort of public facing thoughtful dialogue around things uh, but at the same time we have to be wise in, in what battles we choose to to fight and engage in i think that's wonderful that's wonderful words yeah good hey listen um so what's what's next coming in the the, the pike for you what do you have coming up <laughs> Uh, in terms of like writing projects, uh, I'm writing a commentary on Isaiah. So that's a long-term project uh, with the Bible and God's world commentary series focused on sort of ethical issues related to uh, biblical books. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still writing around like ecology of violence in the Bible. Um, 
I have like some brainstorming ideas for future projects that I'm scheming up at the moment. But uh, yeah, those are a few things. Okay. If people want to keep track of you, I know that you're on on Twitter. Is there anywhere anywhere yeah. else where you're releasing content to the world? Not not really. Not really? Okay. <laughs> Just uh, on script and biblical world podcast. Yeah, I'll listen. We, I, yeah. Again, I hear your voice all the time, <laughs> so I know you're still there. Uh, I blue tick verified on Twitter. You gonna you gonna shell out? For oh it? no, no, no. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, if, would if, you have to pay ten dollars a month or something? Why? Well, yeah, maybe it's not. I think it's eight, ten dollars, but it, that might be U.S. So for you, that's like oh my word, that's like fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't afford that. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, well, uh, Professor Lynch, uh, thank you very, very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Mark. It was good to talk with you. <laughs>